Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series, along with Dr. Terry Davidson, director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University, and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Stefano Costanzi. Dr. Costanzi is a professor in the Department of Chemistry at American University. He's also a member of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American. Formerly, he had a position as staff scientist at the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. And uh, based on his work in both chemical sciences and international affairs, he's become a very highly cited scientist. He has two basic lines of research. The first is the application and development of computational chemical strategies to understand the interactions between chemicals and living organisms. And the second deals with the analysis of gaps in current policies and practices that allow the proliferation of chemical weapons And he's also concerned about how to develop solutions to prevent and reduce that proliferation. His unique combination of science and and policy skills has made him an attractive member for many societies. For example, he's a member of the International Center for Chemical Safety and Security Global Team. He is a member of the Scientist Working Group on Biological and Chemical Security, and he's a member of the Chemical Weapons and Convention Coalition. Dr. Costanzi, Stefano, uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Susan, for having me here. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to ask you, hearing your amazing biography and the fact that you are an expert in two very different fields, one a science field and the other uh, international affairs, what led you to, to pursue both lines of accomplishment? Well, thank you, Susan. Well, for, for many years, I... I have had a general interest in various aspects of national and international uh, security, even well beyond chemistry. But being a chemist, then it was uh, pretty natural for me to want to get into chemical security and into the study of uh, chemical weapons uh, uh, non-proliferation, where uh, with non-proliferation, I mean uh, avoiding uh, the spread of um, chemical weapons uh, uh, throughout the world. And this gave me the chance chance to merge my interest in security with my academic work, both from the research and from the teaching perspective. In particular, my attention to chemical weapons really grew around uh, 2012, when the world started to experience a resurgence of this particular threat that for several years, uh, many had thought that was just a threat relegated to the past. In fact, it's not. The chemical weapons landscape has changed, certainly. It's not anymore what we had, let's say, in World War I, large quantities of chemicals used for uh, a state-on-state war. However, chemical weapons indeed, within the last 10 years, have been used several times for several purposes in smaller quantities, 
for example, for counterinsurgencies that have been used in the Syrian, uh, in the context of the Syrian civil war. They've also been used by non-state actors in the Middle East. They have been used in even smaller quantities for assassination purposes. So certainly, certainly there has been a resurgence in the threat. And this is something that um, clearly pushed me towards wanting to study uh, chemical weapons wanted to do something uh, for uh, chemical weapons non-proliferation. I was just going to ask you what uh, types of chemical weapons are the most concerning to you? There are several chemical weapons that are uh, of concern not, not only to me, but to me and the world in general. And these go from the most uh, sophisticated, most potent nerve agents uh, to lower tech uh, chemicals as well, uh, like chlorine, for example, they pose different kinds of threats. Nerve agents are, um, as I said before, extremely toxic uh, chemicals. Chlorine is a much less toxic chemical. However, chlorine is also much more available than, uh, than nerve agents, much more available because clearly chlorine is a, is a dual use type of chemical. And when I say dual use, I mean that uh, chlorine is not only used as a chemical warfare agent, meaning a chemical that is used as a chemical weapon, but also for a wealth of legitimate purposes, for example, for uh, water disinfection, but also in chemical industry. So it is indeed uh, a chemical that is extremely available and also very difficult to regulate because it has so many practical applications. So, so that is also a chemical of concern. For this audience, other chemicals that are chemicals of particular concern are also pharmaceutically based agents or the so-called PBAs, also because of their availability and because of their high toxicity. Here we are mostly talking about uh, narcotics like uh, opioids, fentanyl, molecules like that. Th those are clearly chemicals that uh, are um, widely available because they do have legitimate purposes. They're also used as illicit drugs as well. And they are so lethal that they do have a potential application as chemical weapons. So those are certainly chemicals that are of um, high, um, high concern. And those are all threats that have really emerged in the last in the last few years. I want to step us back just for a minute because I think both you and, and Terry really understand the sort of science behind what causes chemical weapons to be so dangerous and so harmful to the brain, but maybe our listeners don't, and I certainly don't understand that at even the most basic level. Maybe both of you could could uh, pitch in and sort of explain what chemical weapons are doing to the brain? Of course. So let me start with some definitions then. That's probably the best way of doing it. Chemical weapons are uh, uh, weapons that are based on toxic chemicals. So the definition of chemical weapons from the Chemical Weapons Convention, which is the uh, international treaty that poses an entire ban on chemical weapons, is that chemical weapons are toxic chemicals that bring about... Uh, harm or death uh, to humans or, uh, or animals. This is, in essence, a definition of chemical weapons from Article 2 of uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention, or uh, CWC. There are several classes of um, chemical warfare agents, where by chemical warfare agents, we mean the, the toxic chemicals that are at the basis of these chemical weapons. And the different classes of chemical warfare agents act differently. For example, 
chlorine that we mentioned before is a so-called choking agent. It's a, it, agent. it's a choking agent because the primary route of absorption is uh, through the airways and uh, it causes damage to, to the airways, therefore uh, falling within the category of uh, uh, choking agents. Other uh, chemical warfare agents, for example, mustards or uh, lewisides, those are vesicants. Vesicants or uh, blistering agents are uh, chemicals that uh, cause blisters through the skin. Other chemical warfare agents, like the nerve agents that I mentioned before, instead are um, um, chemical warfare agents that act directly through the nervous system. In particular, nerve agents act by blocking the ability of the body of breaking down a key neurotransmitter uh, for the functioning of the nervous system. This neurotransmitter is called acetylcholine. And uh, essentially, acetylcholine uh, is a neurotransmitter that is ubiquitous. It, it, it has a function in uh, uh, all of the branches of the nervous system, including the central nervous system, uh, the various branches of the peripheral nervous system. And there is an enzyme which is called acetylcholinesterase that breaks down acetylcholine as soon as this neurotransmitter is released at the synapse. This is very important so that the nerve impulse becomes very punctual. You have a nerve impulse, acetylcholine is degraded by acetylcholinesterase, and the nerve impulse stops right there. Well, nerve agents block the ability of that enzyme to do so. And so acetylcholine remains out there the nervous system, all of the branches of the nervous system essentially keep firing. And eventually, as a countermeasure, uh, the system shuts down entirely. So at the beginning, you have this overexcitement of the nervous system. So you have twitching of the muscles, for example, you have secretions, uh, you have um, high activity of the central nervous system that uh, brings about seizures. And, uh, and then eventually, everything shuts down. There is paralysis there is a respiratory arrest, which is uh, typically the primary cause of death when uh, victims are, uh, are untreated. Some of the nerve agents uh, that people will be familiar with, for example, will be sarin or soman, cyclosarin. Those are all part of the G family uh, or G class of nerve agents. These are nerve agents that were uh, discovered by the Germans prior to World War II and during World War II, so the 1930s, beginning of the 1940s, uh, and then uh, other chemicals that probably many in the audience will be familiar with are the, the V-class of nerve agents, such as VX, for example, or Russian VX. These are uh, later uh, nerve agents which were developed during the Cold War, both in the Western Bloc and the Soviet Union. Those are uh, nerve agents Norwegians also that have become, uh, that have had, you know, quite a great deal of public attention in recent uh, years, in the last couple of years, are the Novichok Norwegians, for instance. Those uh, are also Norwegians that were uh, uh, developed later in the Cold War, beginning in the 1970s in the, in the Soviet Union. The whole story uh, about the Novichoks in the public domain began uh, in March of 2018 uh, with the Skripal uh, poisoning. Sergei Skripal is a former uh, Russian military intelligence agent that uh, um, 
has defected to uh, to the west. It was uh, in uh, the United Kingdom, in uh, Salisbury, and uh, in March of 2018, he was poisoned there together with his daughter, Yulia, with a Novichok um, agent. So the Skripals were brought to the hospital in, uh, in Salisbury, where um, at the beginning, the thought was uh, perhaps they had a an overdose of opioids. But uh, it, it soon became evident that uh, that was not the case, that, uh, that in fact, uh, the Skripals had been uh, poisoned with a, with a nerve agent. And uh, fortunately, the Skripals were uh, treated promptly and uh, very efficaciously at the Salisbury Hospital. They, they both survived the, the attack. Uh, biomedical samples from uh, the Skripals were uh, analyzed in the United Kingdom, as well as uh, by uh, other uh, laboratories. And uh, it became evident that the nerve agent that was used to poison the Skripals was not one of the more mainstream nerve agents, those that we mentioned before, either a G agent or a V agent, but instead, it was uh, one of these nerve agents belonging to this Novichok class. Are those easy to get or are they highly restricted? All nerve agents are very restricted, uh, clearly, also because they are extremely toxic. We are talking about uh, chemicals that uh, just a few milligrams are uh, sufficient to uh, kill a person of average weight. So that, uh, that these are all chemicals that are uh, extremely restricted and that are not certainly uh, easy to, to get. They're not necessarily easy to uh, prepare either, uh, also because uh, due to their, uh, their toxicity, they require uh, highly specialized laboratories, uh, even to uh, synthesize uh, small quantities of them without uh, the chemists working on them, killing themselves in the process. So there are certainly chemicals that are not easy to get. Talk talking about the, the restriction, uh, one thing to be very clear here is that uh, there is a blanket restriction posed by the Chemical Weapons Convention on the use of all chemicals for uh, uh, chemical warfare agent purposes. So any chemical that is used to exploit its toxicity against humans or animals, that, that, is, that is banned entirely by the Chemical Weapons Convention. So it, it doesn't really matter whether or not the chemicals appear in one of the several lists in uh, the several international frameworks for the control of chemical weapons. Any chemical that is used against human, humans or animals is completely banned. So uh, Novichoks are also were also banned back then when uh, when they were used certainly was not something that was uh, some, something that was uh, permissible the novichoks are called organophosphorus chemicals and i know that many common pesticides and if if you have a lawn care company come to your to treat your garden or your lawn they have a lot of organophosphates in those pesticides and in those lawn care treatments. What, is there a difference between uh, what's in Novichoks and what's in those pesticides? All right, so let's say that both uh, the, the pesticides that you're talking about and nerve agents are uh, organophosphorus uh, compounds. And this means that they are organic chemicals that contain uh, a, a phosphorus atom. And those, for those who are more technical, are typically divided into phosphonates, and phosphates. And typically, 
Nervagens are phosphonates. Certainly, the nervagens of the G class, the nervagens of the nervagens of the V class. Novichoks are both phosphonates and phosphates, but they're also organophosphorus compounds. The, the, the phosphonates are closer uh, in structure to canonical nervagens. The phosphates are a bit more different. But the, the, the main difference here then between uh, uh, the organophosphorus compounds that are used as pesticides and those that are used as nervagens are their toxicity. Clearly, those that are used as pesticides are much less toxic to humans. And also, generally speaking, uh, pesticides also have a tendency not to cross the blood-brain barrier, so as to have a less of an effect, at least, uh, on the central nervous system and these other chemicals that we were talking about have. The line between nervagens and pesticides, however, it can, is kind of blurred. In fact, when uh, the Germans discovered nervagens in the 1930s, they were working on uh, pesticides. They were working on pesticides. They stumbled upon these uh, organophosphorus compounds that were more toxic than, uh, than the others, and the, therefore, that particular line was then developed in order to enhance the toxicity and have uh, nerve agents of, uh, of increased uh, lethality. So essentially, it, it is a question of uh, how lethal they, they are. And uh, for those uh, who are chemists, this has to do with the structure activity relationships. Essentially, it's like uh, in uh, uh, the pharmaceutical domain, when you have a molecule, by tweaking the structure of the molecule, you can increase the potency, you can direct the activity in one direction or in another. And so th th this is uh, a very similar, very similar situation. So you have a class of organophosphorus compounds, which are extremely toxic and uh, are uh, considered chemical warfare agents nerve agents, and then there is another class which is much less toxic for humans, which can be used as um, organophosphorus pesticides. So let me just uh, ask this question. So we don't have to worry about pesticides as being uh, necessarily harmful as long as we use the, follow the directions, I guess. It's in it, what you're also saying, it's impossible then for a person to buy pesticides in enough quantity where they can convert them into uh, a really harmful uh, weaponized uh, uh, chemical. Yes, that's correct. It, it, is, uh, it is essentially impossible for a person to get a pesticide and convert it to a uh, nerve agent because that's not the way it works. It's, it's, they're both organophosphorus compounds, but they're clearly not the same uh, the same chemical they have a similar mechanism the same mechanism of action in many regards they inhibit uh, acetylcholinesterase but there are certainly differences in the potencies in the in the route of absorption and uh, in the way that they they affect with humans and even within pesticides there are different um, th th there is a scale there are some pesticides that are more harmful to humans and some that are less harmful to humans and uh, research the regulations of pesticides is continuously evolving so as to make sure that only those that are uh, that are safer are in fact allowed for uh, for general use and there are some that are allowed for general use some that that are allowed you know, in more specific situations for, uh, uh, for pesticides. One thing to mention here, uh, talking about Novichoks, is uh, the fact that uh, 
because Susan asked, why did they, be, did they become of interest uh, to me? One of the reasons that they became of particular interest to me is that Novichok agents were not uh, explicitly covered by the Chemical Weapons Convention schedules prior to the Skripal incident. Uh, what does this mean? Well, the Chemical Weapons Convention has uh, three schedules of chemicals. These schedules of chemicals are not an exhaustive list of chemical warfare agents because, as I mentioned before, any chemical that is used against any toxic chemical that is used against humans or, or animals is to be considered a chemical weapon. However, these uh, chemical weapons convention schedules are uh, uh, there in order to support the treaties, declaration requirements, and verification regime. The Chemical Weapons Convention is a particularly strong treaty. It's very strong not only because it poses a complete ban on chemical weapons, not only because uh, it enjoys almost universal embracement, having uh, a total of 193 state parties, so there are only four countries that are not uh, state parties to the Chemical Weapons Convention, but also because it has declaration requirements and verification regimes, meaning that the state parties to the Chemical Weapons Convention are mandated to declare which of the chemicals that are deemed to be of particular concern for chemical weapons purposes they have. The schedules are divided into three tiers, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, and Schedule 3, where in Schedule 1, essentially there are those chemicals that are considered exclusively or almost exclusively as having a chemical warfare agent purpose or a purpose of being a precursor for the synthesis of chemical warfare agents. For example, you will find all nerve agents in Schedule 1. The other two schedules, Schedule 2 and Schedule 3, are chemicals that are more dual use, increasingly more as you go from Schedule 2 to Schedule 3. So chemicals that have not only chemical warfare agent applications, but they also have legitimate applications. In Schedule 3, you have chemicals that are used in very large uh, industrial scales for legitimate purposes. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you, how do you think this treaty is working? I mean, how, how are these policies and approaches working in terms of eliminating or reducing the risk of, of chemical weapons in the world? What, gra what grade would you give the world in these efforts? I would give a very good grade to the Chemical Weapons Convention because uh, it, it is a it is a very strong treaty, as I say, for the for the reasons that I that I was mentioning before. It is a complete ban on chemical weapons. It is a complete ban on chemical weapons, not just a ban on the use of chemical weapons. It's a ban on uh, the development, uh, the stockpiling, uh, the trade. So state parties to the Chemical Weapons Conventions can do essentially nothing with chemical weapons. The Chemical Weapons Convention is primarily a disarmament treaty in the sense that the primary purpose of the Chemical Weapons Convention was, and still is, uh, getting rid of all of the chemical weapons stockpiles that have been accumulated prior to the entrance into force of the Chemical Weapons Convention in 1997. And this is a process that has almost been uh, completed. And the United States is still in the process of, here we're still in the process of uh, uh, getting rid of the uh, last uh, remainders of uh, the chemical weapon stockpiles that have been accumulated 
there are two sites in the US where uh, chemical weapons are currently still being uh, in the process of being eliminated. And the process is taking uh, you know, quite a bit of time because it's done in a way that is uh, very environmentally sound and, and, and very safe. And uh, the process will be completed uh, in uh, 2023. Well, that's good to hear. So what, what do you think, what are the gaps and holes? What are the next steps? What, what, what does the world need to turn to next in terms of? Okay, so th this uh, brings me back to the question that you asked before, which uh, uh, was still in the process of, of uh, answering and uh, will give me the chance, I guess, to finish it, talking about it, about Novichoks. So what, what happened with this Novichoks? Novichoks, uh, despite the fact that, uh, as, as I mentioned before, by... In, in, in virtue of being toxic chemicals that uh, have no other purpose uh, than being chemical warfare agents due to their toxicity, were already banned uh, under the umbrella of the so-called general purpose criterion of the Chemical Weapons Convention. However, Novichoks, these Novichoks were not in the Chemical Weapons Convention schedules. So in Schedule 1, you will find, prior to the Skripal incident, uh, Nervagents of the G class, Nervagents of the V class, but no Novichok agents. After the Skripal incident, then two proposals were uh, submitted to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is the organization that um, oversees the implementation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. Two proposals were submitted to add Novichoks to the Chemical Weapons Convention schedules. And one of the proposals was submitted uh, jointly by the United States, Canada, and uh, the Netherlands. And another uh, proposal instead was submitted by the Russian uh, Federation. The two proposals were uh, examined together and uh, they were voted uh, by the uh, Conference of State Parties uh, to the Chemical Weapons Convention in uh, November of 2019, and uh, this led to the first amendment of uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention schedules uh, since the entrance into force, the first and only amendment of uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention schedules since the entrance into force of, uh, of the convention. So I've been studying, uh, together with uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Greg Koblenz from George Mason University, uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention schedules and uh, the coverage of Novichoks, uh, uh, the way that Novichoks should be covered by the Chemical Weapons Convention schedule prior, during, and after the process of this uh, uh, amendment of the schedules. And uh, we had uh, outlined, while the process was ongoing, that uh, there was a gap that had been left open in the way that this amendment had been crafted. Essentially, there were some of these Novichok agents that uh, were left out by the schedules. And so we had pointed out this gap. And uh, what happened then, more recently, in August of 2020, as you probably know, there was another poisoning, another poisoning with uh, Novichok agents. I'm referring to the poisoning of um, Alexei Navalny. Alexei Navalny is a political activist, a Russian political activist, an anti-Kremlin uh, political activist, who was poisoned in August of 2020 
He fell ill as he was flying uh, back from uh, uh, Tomsk towards uh, Moscow. The plane had to make an emergency landing. He was uh, treated with, uh, with atropine in uh, Russia. He was then evacuated uh, upon request of his family to, to Germany to Berlin at the Charité Hospital, where he was uh, uh, treated by medical samples from Navalny were uh, analyzed by German authorities. They were also analyzed by OPCW designated laboratories. And what they found out is that uh, indeed, Alexei Navalny uh, was poisoned with a Novichok agent and was poisoned with a Novichok agent, which was not covered by the CWC Schedule 1. So it was not part of uh, the, the Novichoks that had been added uh, to uh, the schedules after the Skripal incident. And so this is, a, this is an incident that clearly underlines, highlights the gap that uh, Greg and I had uh, already identified. And uh, we do have a manuscript that is uh, currently under review that where we uh, lay out exactly how a further amendment of uh, the, 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 the CWC schedules uh, should, be, should be crafted in order to give more comprehensive coverage to these uh, to these agents. So th this is one of the things that, that that can be done. Look at look at the schedules, making sure that everything that uh, should be in there uh, is there. Also, an important thing is uh, the coverage not only of the agents but also of the precursors for the synthesis of the agents. Precursors are somewhat more difficult than the agents themselves to regulate because precursors for the synthesis of chemicals are typically dual-use chemicals, meaning that they have multiple purposes or multi-use chemicals. They not only can be used for the synthesis of nerve agents, but they can also be used for other uh, legitimate purposes. But it's important to regulate them, especially to regulate their trade. And um, there is a framework which is called the Australia Group, which is a an organization that uh, an, an informal arrangement of uh, 42 countries that get together to harmonize export controls, and um, especially for uh, the control of chemical and uh, biological uh, proliferation. So they have this list of uh, uh, chemical weapons precursors, and uh, they, they did update the list of chemical weapons precursors after the Skripal incident at the beginning of uh, uh, 2020, in February of 2020. Yes. Can, can I ask a question? I, I, I worry that there could be a cat and mouse game where new chemicals will be added to the schedules and then another chemical will be developed that... Is, is there a concern about that? I mean, it seems like the, the basic purpose is to not develop chemical weapons, and yet there are still instances of, of the use of increasingly toxic and awful weapons occurring. It reminds me of the problem with uh, illicit drugs, and that is you change the chemical structure of a drug, and it's no longer a banned substance or a banned drug because it's a different substance, but it's still very harmful. I'm wondering if the same kind of thing can happen in chemical weapons. So th this is uh, another one of the strengths of the Chemical Weapons Convention. The Chemical Weapons Convention in its schedules, not only uh, it allows for the listing of, of individual chemicals, but it allows for the listing of families of chemicals. 
So essentially, when, for instance, to, to, to talk about novichoks, when uh, the um, schedules were amended to add novichoks, the joint proposal, the one that was uh, submitted by the US, Canada, and the Netherlands, that added two very large families of novichoks. These families are um, very comprehensive and uh, with just one line, with just one entry, by defining uh, a central chemical scaffold with uh, a number of variable chemical groups attached to it, and given the range of the chemical groups that are attached to it, this can cover a very wide chemical space. So that if a new chemical belonging to that class gets made at any point in time, that will also be captured by that particular entry. This is very similar to what pharmaceutical companies do, for instance, when they patent a chemical of pharmaceutical interest. They don't just patent that particular molecule, they patent all the chemical space around it, because clearly they don't want any of their competitors to come up with a chemical that is similar in structure to their chemical, but it's a bit different. So the chemical weapons convention schedules have that, have that approach. And th that also poses some complications. And uh, with my work, I'm also trying to overcome those complications. The complications are uh, in the fact that uh, clearly for someone who is not a chemist, it is uh, uh, rather difficult to understand whether or to figure out whether a chemical, a specific chemical, falls within the scope of one of these families of chemicals. I have a question and it has to do, I think actually Susan might want to ask this question, but I'll throw it out there. And that is, you talked about people who don't have knowledge of chemistry or chemicals, uh, yet they're involved in making decisions uh, about what kind of chemicals should be banned or restricted. I noticed that you're a member, as I mentioned earlier, that a number of, uh, like you're a member of a global team and a, and a working group and a convention coalition. And all of those things seem to involve both knowledge of chemistry and chemical safety and also political or uh, policy issues associated with security. And so you're a unique person in that you have backgrounds in both those things. I take it that that's probably not the, the way that these, these committees are set up. Is there a lot of difficulty uh, communicating and, 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 and talking uh, between the policy people and the chemical people? And, also, and follow that up is I, how did you make the transition where you're, you're the kind of person who can do both? So there are some challenges, and the challenges are uh, mostly due to the language, the language of chemistry, which is extremely intricate, and it's extremely convoluted, and it's a language that uh, uh, people who are not chemists uh, or who don't have a significant training in chemistry typically don't, uh, don't speak. And um, so with my work, uh, in many ways, I... I'm actually trying to fill this, uh, this gap. Like for instance, with uh, my colleagues, we have uh, annotated with structures and uh, with uh, additional information, uh, the chemical weapons control list from uh, several international frameworks. Uh, not only we have published this work on uh, a scientific journal, uh, a journal from uh, the American Chemical Society, uh, but uh, we have also published 
perhaps more importantly, this annotated less on a website, on my research website, and that this effort aims exactly at uh, uh, wanting to, to facilitate the communication between uh, chemists and policymakers who uh, work together for uh, the common objective of ensuring uh, chemical weapons non-proliferation. So it makes it easier to communicate, for instance, the difference between uh, the different nerve agents or the difference between uh, different classes of chemical warfare agents and, uh, uh, and, and whatnot. It's wonderful that you can work in that, you know, to bridge that, that divide. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you was because you can talk policy and you can talk science at the same time. So congratulations for that. Um, it's really wonderful. Um, I think we're, we're going to have to wind up, unfortunately. But before we do, any concluding thoughts or comments? One thing that I want to mention, there are two things that I want to mention. Uh, the, the, the one thing that I wanted to mention is that uh, another big piece of work that we are doing in order to facilitate the communication uh, between uh, uh, chemists and non-chemists who work in chemical weapons non-proliferation is the work that we are doing to actually assist uh, frontline officers. Uh, that are uh, uh, front line officer, I mean export control officers or customs uh, officers uh, that uh, work to support chemical weapons non-proliferation. It is extremely difficult for them to gauge whether or not being given a chemical name, the name of a chemical that is being shipped or a registry number for a chemical that is being shipped, it is extremely difficult for them to figure out whether or not that chemical is one of the chemicals that falls within the scope of one of these control lists. It is even more difficult if we consider the families of chemicals. So what we're, what we're doing, we are uh, working on uh, a um, database that uh, will automate this task. This is work that I'm doing in collaboration with uh, the Stimson Center, uh, with a group led by Dr. Rick Cupid from the Stimson Center, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., and also with uh, Dr. Koblenz, who I already mentioned before. And um, it is work that is funded by Global Affairs Canada. And uh, we had developed a prototype of this uh, database. In the next phase of uh, the project, we're looking forward to test this prototype in some select jurisdiction to see how much it helps uh, frontline officers um, in the field and get some feedback and um, eventually push the development of this uh, prototype into a more mature product that can be adopted uh, worldwide. So th th that's one thing that I wanted to say. The other thing that I wanted to say as well is... Uh, and this, going back to the first question and how did I get into the field of chemical weapons and whatnot, remember that I, I, I mentioned the fact that in around 2012, there was a resurgence of the threat of chemical weapons and we've seen many uh, incidents uh, since then. But also, uh, 2012 is uh, the year when I joined American University. Being at American University has been a, uh, a very important factor for my work in uh, chemical weapons. Being at American University gave me the chance to interact with uh, many colleagues uh, who focus on various aspects of international security. Uh, I am also an alum from the School of International Service, uh, where I got a Master of International Service degree. I had uh, a lot of uh, 
colleagues who really inspired me here in uh, in this work. One of them, for example, is Dr. Dan, Dan Gerstin. Dr. Gerstin is a retired U.S. Army colonel, now is a RAND. Uh, at the Rand Corporation, he held very high-level position in U.S. government as a civilian. Uh, he focuses on uh, biological weapons, uh, disarmament and non-proliferation, more in general technology and security. Teaches several courses here as an adjunct. Uh, so it, it, it really being at American University made me found an environment that inspired me uh, in this transition and uh, and and really encouraged me to to pursue this uh, this line. Uh, of research and also this line of um, of teaching. Also, wonderful students, great interactions with them. I taught courses on uh, chemical weapons, uh, uh, non-proliferations for both science major and non-science majors. Always very good interactions with them. One of the things that they liked, in fact, both of them is being exposed to the other side, meaning the non-science majors being exposed to, 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 to science issues, the science majors being exposed to policy issues and whatnot. So great place where to be, American University, and where to do this kind of work. I agree. It's so important to have those dialogues across disciplines. We're trying to increase that kind of, of, of filling in the gap between this, the sciences and policymakers. And I think you're a great example of, of someone who can do that, and we hope to have uh, ability to train our students to do that as well. So thank you so much. This was fascinating conversation. Terry, did you want to add anything before we sign off? No, I think I think I would just want to say thanks again, Stefano, for joining us. Um, and uh, it was very informative. And uh, keep up the good work. Thank you for having me here. It was a real pleasure. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening, and as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy.american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, and do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear more about.